What's up, guys, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Binge Mode made its grand return earlier this month, and Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion are deep diving on the Star Wars franchise, covering every movie, the newly released Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, and fan favorite characters. You can check out new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And up on the site, we have more Mandalorian coverage written by Micah Peters, Allison Herman, and Ben Lindbergh, as well as staff-wide surveys throughout the season. You can check it all out on theringer.com. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer here with your instant reaction to the November Democratic debate. David, this reminded me of a baseball game that was one-to-one going into the eighth inning, and there were a couple of solo homers to close it out, but that just served to underline how little action there was throughout the rest of the game. The frontrunners for the Democratic nomination really weren't challenged tonight. Case in point, Pete Buttigieg, a frontrunner in the early states, really had to weather only a late and slightly weird foreign policy encounter with Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Let's listen. Does not qualify us to serve as commander in chief. I think the most recent example of your inexperience in national security and foreign policy came from your recent careless statement about how you as president be willing to send our troops to Mexico to fight the cartels. As commander in chief, leader of our armed forces, I bring extensive experience serving for seven years in Congress on the Foreign Affairs Committee, on the Armed Services Committee, on the Homeland Security Committee, meeting with leaders of of, uh, countries around the world, working with military commanders of different commands, uh, dealing with high-level national security briefings, understanding what's necessary, the preparation that I've gotten to walk in on day one to serve as Commander-in-Chief. Congresswoman, thank you. Mr. Mayor, I'll allow you to respond. I know that it's par for the course in Washington to take remarks out of context, but that is outlandish even by the standards of today's politics. Are are you saying that you didn't say that? I was talking about U.S.-Mexico cooperation. We've been doing security cooperation with Mexico for years with law enforcement cooperation and a military relationship that could continue to be developed with training relationships, for example. Do you seriously think anybody on this stage is proposing invading Mexico? That, that's not I'm what talking I said. About- There's a great line by the writer Ben Jacobs about invading Mexico. This isn't James K. Polk's Democratic Party anymore. <laughs> that's good stuff. Can we agree, David, that if you told Pete Buttigieg he would be attacked basically once tonight and it would be by Tulsi Gabbard about invading Mexico that he would have absolutely taken that deal in a debate that was kind of supposed to be about him. Yeah, I think, I think he probably would have taken that. Although you, I mean, his reaction to Gabbard's comments was, I mean, you could tell he, he, his feathers were ruffled. Um, Maybe it was just such a, I mean, the, the accusation was just like so out of left field that he was, you know, slightly caught off guard and, um, I think after the, I think and and maybe he was just lulled in complacency by what was overall a pretty uh, amiable debate. The last yes. act, like you said, turned turned. You know, I mean, had it, it was about as combative as as it could have. I mean, it, as as anything else in the night. I mean, I think it sort of turned 
when the conversation turned to race. Um, but it wasn't just specifically about that. There are a lot of issues that sort of popped up, and I feel like a lot of people were trying to get in, get in their their last shots. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the you know I think that Buttigieg, for the most part, came out you know pretty clean. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, his performance was was assured. His performance was was confident. Um, it certainly wasn't as kind of offensively moderate as he has been. Uh, he wasn't the last debate, but um, substance wise, I mean, it just kind of felt like a lot of just second rate Obama stick to me. I mean, I was I was not that compelled by the guy. Tad friend of the New Yorker. Uh, his line was Mayor Pete slinging some excellent Frank Capra shit in here. So that, that yeah. which actually may be the same thing as you're talking about with second rate Obama shit. I, I just thought he he did a great job of doing exactly what he wanted to do, which is lean into his inexperience by saying you people are fighting in Capitol Hill. He had that whole bit how he's the least wealthy candidate on stage about how mm-hmm. he doesn't play golf. Uh, he had that line late in the debate about over a hundred years of government service on the stage, and look where we are. Of course, that hundred years yeah. of government service is not actually running the White House at this moment. Um, constantly talking about unifying the American people, but you know, this was this is a debate that comes when, according to that recent Des Moines Register CNN poll, he's up nine in Iowa. According to St. Anselm poll, up ten in New Hampshire. Now, even if you, you know, doubt those two polls, this was supposed to be this kind of Buddha judgment day where <laughs> we were going to see, just like we saw with Warren last time, how he could stand up to attacks. I thought he did a good job of of standing up when he had to, but he really didn't have to stand up to many. He had this one point where he had an answer on military spending. Everyone's dying to get in and MSNBC goes to commercial. Another time where one of the moderators set up Kamala Harris to talk about Buttigieg and race, a really interesting topic. She had criticized him earlier for using that stock photo on his Douglas plan of the woman from Kenya. Uh, She declined to renew her criticism, and he was able to give this big soaring answer that was exactly the answer he wanted to give about black voters getting to know him. So, like I said... It just felt like if everybody's staying in their lanes and nobody's attacking the front runners, the front runners are probably still going to be the front runners at the end of the night, are they not? I think that's I, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, I think that if you were inclined to vote for Pete Buttigieg, or, or even if he was, you know, if, if he's if it's if he's a potential, if you potentially get your vote, um, I'm sure that a lot of what he said, you know, I'm specifically thinking of the black voters uh, comment that you just mentioned. I'm sure a lot of that stuff was was compelling to you. Um, I, you know, you could and you could see a lot of that on social media. I mean, I I saw a lot more people who were, um, if not anti Buttigieg, than you know, plainly pro Harris or pro Booker, who were who were just sort of guffawing at everything that Mayor Pete said. Um, again, I think that that staying in your staying in the lane, staying in in one's lane, is is I think the right metaphor tonight because everybody just sort of. Um, I mean, there were a lot of great performances. Kamala, Kamala Harris gave a commanding performance when she was, when you know, when she spoke almost across the board. Cory Booker did a great job. A lot of the, you know, the kind of second tier of candidates had their best nights. Amy Klobuchar did really well. Um, but the, 
but I think overall, I, I think you asked the right question. Is it going to move the needle? I mean, I, I, it's it's kind of hard to imagine that after, I mean, a night as great as, as Senator Harris had that, 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 you know, she's, it's hard to imagine her jumping 10 points in the Iowa polls. I, we'll see, we'll see. But it, it did seem like the lack of combat, the la- I mean, I think overall, I'll say this. I enjoyed this debate. I think that the debate really, really benefited from from the hosts giving the candidates the opportunity to agree, um, and not picking not not picking you know minor fights, but you know not not finding minor points of disagreement just for the sake of of you know drumming up you know memes or YouTube clips for later on. Um, giving the candidates the opportunity to agree led to some really interesting and profound moments. But I think as to the bigger, more meta question, everybody was able to stay in their lane because of that. And I'm not sure how much, how much, you know, tomorrow is going to look different than today. Can I propose another theory too? I think some of the lack of angst was moderator driven for sure. I think Mm -hmm. another part of it, maybe subconsciously, is the fact that this really felt like a sideshow next to this incredible impeachment hearing that's going on in Washington right now. You know, it was easy to forget during the course of today that this debate was actually still happening. When you had the testimony of Gordon Sondland today, uh, yesterday you had the testimony of you better call him Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like that was a weird backdrop to then turn around to the Democrat next to you and go in on Medicare for all. It just felt like tonally that was just a weird, weird time to do that. And I think, I think that took some of the air out of the tires tonight. I think, I think that's correct. Uh, it was there. There was a couple of moments. I mean, literally one or two when a candidate seemed said something to the effect of, "A lot of the other people up here on stage might want to," and then you know fill in your straw man or your or your legitimate critique. Um, for the most part, there wasn't even a lot of like vague attacks on other people on stage. It, it wasn't until sort of the last act of the debate when I thought it sort of came into focus that there were some distinctions, and maybe it's it's the the moderates versus the liberals, but maybe it's just sort of you know more of a more of a demographic difference. Maybe it's just more of a, an ideological difference. But um, but you know the Medicare for all argument is the one that we keep honing in on, and and, and I think that that's. I, I, I don't think that that's illegitimate. I think that's an important thing to talk about for sure. But then we started getting into these other, the, the actual points of, of division. And, and, and it's not the silly stuff that's been drummed up in the previous debates. It's reasonable stuff like pot legalization, like 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 abortion law and, and whether or not Roe versus Wade should be an actual law as opposed to just it's assumed to be the law of the land. The public funding of elections like these these are you know, maybe small bore issues in the grand in, in I mean, in, in terms of just like Democrats don't necessarily agree or disagree on a large scale. But I thought that that, that when those issues started coming up, that the, those did more damage to some to, to the institutional candidates, Biden in particular, than maybe some of, you know, some some of the, the things that were given more time. Yes, I totally agree. And I think that maybe that's because they just haven't been brought up as much. feels like we have litigated healthcare to the end of the earth at this point. Mm-hmm. But that stuff just hasn't had its, its moment. I also think when you talk about difference in ideas, just as striking to me on that stage 
And and by the way, on Twitter versus the people on that stage is difference in tone and difference in affect. And you talk about Pete Buttigieg being a little bit hokey. That is absolutely what he wants to do. Yeah, he he is going for Frank Capra. He is trying to be the Frank Capra candidate in this race. He had that thing where he said the sun's going to come up on the day after the Trump presidency ends and it's going to be a tender moment. And one of the other candidates, maybe it was Kamala Harris, I can't remember, said kind of in a little bit of a, you know, that tender day or whatever, kind of mocking him, I thought a little bit. But but that's where he wants to go with this. Clearly, other candidates clearly want to go absolutely red meat to the base. Other candidates like Klobuchar want to kind of go in the middle. She's not going Frank Capra at all, but it's more that, you know, less affected Midwestern populism. It's just it's just a fascinating. I mean, we are we had 10 candidates there today and there were basically 10 different tones there. And that's if you can actually discern what Tom Steyer's tone is more on him in a second. <laughs> I do want to talk to you about Joe Biden's night. Got off to kind of a weird start when he sent out his generic post debate message at like three o'clock, sent out a note to supporters saying, I'm leaving the fifth de- Democratic debate now. I hope I made you proud out there. The debate had not happened. <laughs> At that point, he's still doing that thing, David, where when he can't think of what he's supposed to say or makes a mistake, he closes his eyes like he's getting really angry at himself, which I think just makes any verbal stumble so much worse. Uh, Did make a little news tonight by saying he would treat Saudi Arabia like a pariah state and no longer sell them weapons, which was pretty surprising. But as you say, his biggest moment of the night, I think, is when he and Cory Booker got into it on marijuana policy biden was trying to counter by playing up his support with african-americans particularly an african-american senator he's referring to carol mosley braun but listen to how he does it i I have a lot of respect uh for for the vice president he is uh, swore me into my office as a hero this week i hear him literally say that i don't think we should legalize marijuana i i i I thought you might have been high when you said it (laughs) And, and let me tell you in our country is already legal for privileged people. And it's one, the war on drugs has been a war on black and brown people. And so let me just, let me just say this. With more African-Americans under criminal supervision in America than all the slaves since 1850, do not roll up into communities and not talk directly to issues that are going to relate to the liberation of children because there are people in Congress right now that admit to smoking marijuana while there are people, our kids are in jail right now for those drug crimes. And so these are the kind of issues that mean a lot our community and if we don't have somebody authentically we lost the last election i think we should decriminalize marijuana period and i think everyone anyone who has a record should be let out of jail their records expunged it be completely zeroed out but i do think it makes sense based on data that we should study what the long-term effects are for the use of marijuana that's all it is number one everybody gets out record expunged secondly i uh, you know I'm, I'm part of that that Obama coalition. I come out of the black community in terms of my support. If you notice, I have more people supporting me in the black community that have announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus, the only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, my point no, is... That's not true. The other that's one is true. here. <laughs> 
said the first. Thank I said the first African-American elected. <laughs> first African-American. So my point is, my point is that one of the reasons I was picked to be vice president was because of my relationship, long-standing relationship. Kamala Harris said, no, no. I am standing right here. I am standing right here. By the way, that whole answer, woo, was he fishtailing all over the place. I come out of the black community in terms of in- my support. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, like there's no end of that sentence. They could have worked out for him, and I, I don't. I, he certainly didn't find it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's here's the thing. It's my my first reaction is it's just not good terrain for Biden to be you know engaging on, but that seemed to be sort of his his mo for tonight. That seemed to be like he seemed to just sort of be like his entire game plan was to sort of say out loud the things that he was only that you know that previously he was just sort of thinking to himself or, or talking to his campaign staff about. You know, I mean, and and I I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure that's a bad idea. It's it was it was very kind of unsettling in the moment. Um, but I, I mean, listen. I, I think that I think that there's, I, I I there's certainly a logic to, you know, vote for the person who's going to be able to beat Trump and vote for the person who's going to be able to flip Senate seats, and that's me. And that's the sort of argument that usually is left to talking heads and to spokespeople and campaign staff to make for you, right? It's, it was it's, it's, it was unusual for Biden to be making that in real time. But again, maybe it'll work. He's out there on the stage. He's the one that people are paying attention to. I think what's much what was much less effective, setting the race comments aside, was his continued insistence, and he's done, been doing this all along, but it felt really much more extreme tonight that He's out there in the lead on every single issue because he was there in, in Washington when they passed whatever archaic version of the bill was. And I <laughs> right. think that at the end of in any other in, in a head to head election and, you know, in a one on one matchup, I mean, against against Trump, but, but definitely against any other Republican. That's what exactly what's going to be thrown back in his face. That's the reason why senators have a hard time getting elected for the, into the presidency, because they have this long they have this litany of bills attached to them. And for him to just be like, oh, no, 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 don't. I mean, basically, the argument was don't worry about this stuff because I'm already thinking about it. I've already done all this stuff. Well, that's an insult to everybody that's still out there suffering. Right. To say that, like, we've already we've already been over that. It's just it's it's insulting. So I really I think that, you know, maybe he maybe maybe the electability argument is sound. I think that the substantive argument about him being, you know, the most liberal guy up on stage is was was wanting. He particularly when he's as you say embracing this gigantic record of legislation he was talking about the violence against women act he's trying to make a point about domestic violence and he said we need to change the culture of domestic violence and keep punching at it and punching at it and punching Mm. at it and everybody started laughing because that does not feel like the right metaphor for tackling domestic violence no that was a uniquely joe biden metaphor um, the 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 crowd reacted to him several points in the night in the in the clip you just played and also in that moment more sort of viscerally than anything except for a couple of I think Kamala Harris laugh lines Cory Booker too obviously, um but it but with there was a real kind of anxiety coming from the crowd with some of the things that he said justifiably maybe they were just mic'd differently maybe they were it's a more responsive audience but um 
But yeah, I mean, for for him to listen, we all everybody makes mistakes, but 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 Biden, you know, slips the tongue, whatever. Biden is notorious for them, and for him in that moment to not realize what he said, not and and to say like, no, 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 I mean it. Um, that just seemed like just yep. it, it perfect. What do you Biden think gaff. they were laughing at? Do you think they were laughing at the idea? Like, no, 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 I'm not making a joke. No, it's like, no, no, we're laughing at the way you're expressing this idea, he, dude. It was the reaction of a man who's used to being laughed at. I mean, that's the problem. <laughs> oh, God, that's so heartbreaking. It's incredibly sad. Um, David, does it make me the kind of centrist pundit that is hated by liberal Twitter if I say Amy Klobuchar had a good night? Because, <laughs> no. Because she had a good night, as you said. First of all, I love that Amy Klobuchar is the only presidential candidate in history that can approvingly quote Walter Mondale at a debate. <laughs> Even Walter Mondale didn't approvingly quote Walter Mondale. <laughs> um, she has an amazing ability to kind of lull you into complacency with about like 15 seconds of just the most boring thing you've ever heard. And then, but didn't somehow lead it into a really great one liner or really compelling argument without shifting gears she just sort of she just sort of revs up a little bit and all of a sudden she's like she's got you um and it has a power to it because it starts small or it starts on a real even keel and that's what makes it so she was talking about voting right or she was talking about citizens united and campaign finance and then she swerved into saying look if the law was different stacy abrams would be governor of georgia right now the debate was in atlanta our very own Kenny Herzog notes that that is the definition of a cheap pop, and it was very effective. <laughs> and then she had that answer where, again, they were kind of setting her up because she had made a comment to the to the notion of, look, if a woman with Pete Buttigieg's experience was standing up on this debate stage, we would say she's unqualified because there's a different standard for women than there is for men. They kind of reloaded that one of the moderators so that she would go in on Buttigieg instead she turns it into this rousing answer, an incredible answer. Let's take a quick listen. Women are held to a higher standard. Otherwise, we could play a game called name your favorite woman president, which we can't do because it has all been men, um, including all vice presidents being men. And I think any working woman out there, any woman that's at home knows exactly what I mean. We have to work harder, and that's a fact. But I want to dispel one thing. Because for so long, why has this been happening? I don't think you have to be the tallest person on this stage to be president. I don't think you have to be the skinniest person. I don't think you have the loudest voice on this stage. I don't think that means that you will be the one that should be president. I think what matters is if you're smart, if you're competent, and if you get things done. She went on to say that Nancy Pelosi beats Donald Trump every day. So, of course, a woman can beat Donald Trump in the general election. She was really good. She was really good. Don't know if that's going to change anything with her polling and her chances, which seem to rest all on Iowa and how she does there. But she had a great night. Can we put Kamala Harris and Cory Booker together? Because as you say, they've now they're both kind of in the lower tier of presidential candidates. Booker's always been there. Harris has been there after her surge brief surge earlier in the year but they both had good nights tonight and 
I don't know. I think I feel like you and I say this after every debate, David. They had the kind of nights that make you wonder why they're not at the top of the polls. It is a mystery that maybe, you know, if we keep this podcast going for a decade, we'll have some inkling of an answer <laughs> as to how these things work by the end of it. Um, you know, I think that what was frustrating about Harris's performance is it was evocative of that first debate where she did really well and where the polls reflected that immediately thereafter. And but but the but the the performances in between have been were were so much less impressive and not for any real discernible reason, right? I mean, it's just sort of like uh, you know, like a like a basketball player that has on nights and off nights, and you can't really like you, you, and there's and there's no rhyme or reason to why she was transcendent tonight. I mean, she had some moments. I mean, that that the the line about um about about politicians catering to the black community about the 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 ending was uh you know the yes, question becomes women. where have you been black women yeah the question becomes where have you been what are you going to do about it I mean. She just, I mean, she had the nation in the palm of her hand. Um, Booker, on the other hand, it wasn't so much a continuation of where he's been before. And maybe it has an ideological continuation. But to me, what I kept thinking of was all those sort of like the, that block of Republican voters that insists that, they're, that they vote Republican just because they're like economically conservative, but they're, but they're socially liberal. Like that, Booker seemed to sort of like be deliberately rebranding as that except like the democratic version of it. Mm. Um, he was very, he was as far left and compelling and, 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 and outspoken on just about every issue he, he could, he could wrap his hands around except economic policy where he, which he, which he started off the night with and which he spoke really eloquently about, but you know, from his economic, I mean, from, you know, from with his, questionable relationship with Wall Street over the years and 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 you know all that all that stuff the the discussion about about prosperity for more you know pathways to prosperity for more Americans I I I had I had a little bit of trouble with it um not that he should be disingenuous I think that he believes it really you know he he believes that very seriously but it felt like sort of a platitude in an arena where I would want a little bit more specificity from from him in particular. There would be a really interesting timeline where Harris or Booker were started a race where you had like two or three Democrats, kind of like we had in 2008, with one really flawed frontrunner, and they were kind of the, you know, second candidate and insurgent candidate they could win that nomination i just think they're lost in this somehow mm-hmm. and i also think don't you think when you hear both of them talk that both of them would, would be much better as a front runner than as an insurgent candidate just Absolutely. the way just the way they talk like you if 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 under some scenario they were at the top of the polls i think they would go into debate and just coast and be great but it's hard for them. It's been really hard for them to make up ground and find their way into that first tier again. That's just like you said. Maybe we're going to need like another game change sequel, not by that <laughs> one guy, but the other guy, yeah. um, and a couple of campaign books to figure out why. I think that. The, I, I mean, I think I think the Harris campaign has had a hard time, or has had not, not has has had a little bit of difficulty sort of defining itself. And I think every debate tonight was a great example where she really made the case for how her experience as a prosecutor made her the right person for the job, right? I mean, the, the, she defended everybody 
no matter their race, their their gender, the you know their their economic background, and that's the sort of person we need as a president. That's that was kind of the most compelling version of that argument we heard tonight from anybody. Um, but I think we've gotten a sort of like a piece of the biographical sketch in each debate, and they haven't really coalesced into one argument for her candidacy in favor of her candidacy candidacy. Um, and I think that you're right in the sense that if she were the front runner or, or if she were running, you know, if she had more, more space to run a sort of unique political campaign, um, I mean, a unique campaign on the politics, then maybe she'd have time to figure that stuff out or maybe it would, it would come, you know, it would come together. But for most politicians that comes packaged in, Booker's actually completely the opposite. I mean, I think the biggest lesson in politics that we've learned over the past couple of cycles is if you have the opportunity to run, you run. I mean, if, if, if anybody's asking you if you're running for president, the answer either has to be yes or never. And Elizabeth Warren may be the only candidate to put the lie to that. But it worked for Obama. It worked for Trump. And I think the biggest problem with the Booker campaign is we've been reading about his potential presidential run for about 45 years. And <laughs> and that's and that's worked to his benefit. I mean, that's helped him that helped him in, in national politics or in, in local politics forever. But, you know, at this point. I think that I think that that's why he's probably get, having some difficulty getting traction because it doesn't feel that there's no newness to him. So they're kind of coming from very different points of view. Uh, I mean, very different places in terms of the campaign. But I agree. I mean, at at their best, both of them tonight spoke like like incredible. Like maybe they, they were two probably the two most compelling speakers on the stage. And if they had been if they had been like you said the front runners, it would have felt like you know. Obama at the DNC, that sort of moment. I mean, it was they, they, they were they, they both had high, they both had high points, but it just seemed to lack whatever it was behind it that that really allowed would allow us to feel that way. We're putting it on them too, but hey, imagine if the primaries and caucuses were in a different order, and <laughs> you know Iowa wasn't dictating anything. Maybe maybe this leaderboard would look different. Um, you're going to have to help me with Bernie Sanders because I didn't get a great clear sense of Bernie Sanders tonight. I almost felt like I was an Iowa voter getting a Bernie Sanders robocall. Yeah. Just the talking points recited to me. I the obligatory. I wrote the damn bill moment. Um, do you have, do you have a sense of how Bernie did tonight? I don't think it was bad. I, no, I thought he did really well. Bernie, I think, and again, I could be totally wrong. It seemed to me like Bernie got the most kind of incisive direct questions from the moderators. There was a mm -hmm. Maddow asked him at one point, if it was about the lock him up chance that were going on uh, at his campaign rallies, um, something that he specifically had to answer for. That's a tough question, you know, that that didn't really happen to any of the other candidates, certainly not Mayor Pete. And then later there's a question about whether or not he'd make a deal with the Taliban that was directed specifically at him. I think there was an another one or two. Um, and he answered the questions really well. He did seem to be. Uh, you know, those weren't exactly left field questions, but compared to what some of the, you know, the, the, the affronts that the other candidates got, if they got any at all, I thought they were, those were, you know, a tougher line of questioning than, than one might've expected. Um, I think that, you know, as we've seen in other debates, Bernie's kind of treated like a front runner when it, when it hurts him and, and treated like a, and treated like an also ran, um, mm -hmm. when, when, when the other front runners are getting their third and fourth time to answer the same question. Totally um, right. and he, he's, he's a, he, he had a really good night. Um, I don't want to belabor the age and health stuff, but he looked great. He, his performance was, uh, was moving and powerful. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, someone, Matt Iglesias or somebody tweeted that, you know, no one goes to Bernie for foreign policy, nor should we, but he's always really fun. He, he's always, the like, he gives the best answers about foreign policy. It's always, the, you know, most fun to listen to him. Yeah, and why should we, And I agree we, with that. Huh? Yeah. Why shouldn't we go to him for foreign policy? What where, where, what other what other sages should we be listening to on foreign yeah, policy we're, if not we're, Bernie I mean, Sanders? We're, we're too busy listening to the to the you know the the grunge. I mean the the grudge fight between or two you know between Tulsi Gabbard and Mayor Pete because they both served and and you know more credit to them. But that I mean there's a there's a lot of different ways that these questions that, that wisdom in those arenas can be achieved. All right, David, before we hit the rest of the candidates, let's take a quick break. For over 115 years, Oris has been making purely mechanical watches in Holstein, Switzerland. Staying true to a rich heritage, Oris is one of the few Swiss watch companies to remain independently owned and operated. Because of this independence, Oris has the freedom to follow its own path. They're focused on bringing change for the better, which means making choices that are ecologically, socially, and financially responsible. That includes ocean conservation and recycled plastic partnerships. Of course, that's along with Oris's century-long and change commitment to making inventive, high-functioning Swiss-made watches that serve a real purpose and at prices that make sense, the best possible watch for the money. Comprised of four themes, diving, aviation, motorsport, and culture, Oris watches are made for everyday wear. Shop the many different unique styles at O-R-I-S dot ch slash press box you're sure to find one that's your style and suits your taste that's o-r-i-s dot ch slash press box we'll hit a few more here elizabeth warren i kind of thought was a little bit in the pete Buttigieg camp tonight in the sense she's actually had a difficult couple of weeks first taking on water for medicare for all then taking on water for delayed implementation of Medicare for all, as she proposed, that didn't Mm -hmm. really come up tonight at all. And she was allowed to go back to being the Elizabeth Warren who gained all that ground over the summer. Here's my plan. Let's talk about the wealth tax, getting into a little bit of a back and forth with Cory Booker, who seemed like he didn't even want to be in the back and forth with her about the wealth Mm -hmm. tax. Um, she got to talk a little bit about housing. I thought she was, she had one kind of strange answer where she immediately said she wanted to increase the percentage of Americans who were in the military and then cited as an example, her mother going to the mailbox to looking to see if her brother had written home from Vietnam that day. I'm not sure how those two ideas get together, <laughs> like the Vietnam war plus let's have more Americans in the military. But anyway, um, Thought she did. I I think that was the kind of performance that Elizabeth Warren has wanted to deliver and has wanted to get back to. Yeah. After being attacked last time around. Uh, to I mean, to answer the question that you implicitly just asked, I mean, the, the way that she got to that was talking about how three her three brothers had all served in the military and 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 how that is sort of an impl- an argument for um for what you know a, a broader military service by by Americans and I think that that go that that's a piece of what. I think what makes her a really impressive, what makes her a really powerful potential nominee, because the perception of her and the reality of her as a candidate are very different things. And and and, and I I think that if you if you haven't paid a lot any attention to Elizabeth Warren, if you're a independent voter that hasn't been watching the primaries, it's her her personal narrative is such a compelling part of her campaign and one that she ties seamlessly into her politics. And she did a great job. Her closing statement, I thought, was 
was really was really impressive. Uh, it's kind of thanking America for what she was allowed to achieve. And that story about her family, I mean, there's there's been she 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 came back to it a number of times throughout the night, and I thought that was really good. The other thing that she did, and we've talked about this before, that that I think what's impressed me most about her as a candidate is her is her ability to recover. Um, she's done it a number of times, dating all the way back to the Native American snafu before she even announced her pre- her, her candidacy. But mm-hmm. the the Medicare for all thing, the taxation issue, that was a real problem for her coming out of the last debate. And to, and this time, coming into tonight, or at least tonight when she was having that back and forth with Cory Booker, she hit on what I think could just be, you know, the 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 nail that she just like hangs her entire candidacy on going forward. When all she if she just says it's two cents on the top one tenth of one percent over and over again, two cents on the top mm-hmm. tenth of one percent. That it doesn't even matter what you say because she she said it could pay for everything in the world, and and at that point. The arguments about it being hocus pocus economics sort of fall by the wayside because she's saying numbers. I mean, she's actually she's actually talking about a tax, a very specific tax plan, and it's and it's it, it's it's I think a really compelling argument. It's like you can keep, they can keep all this money, but then when it you know once you get past a mil, whatever the number is, two cents on the top one tenth of one percent is a really really. Really, really catchy. Is I think that's the path forward, and that shows how she's recovered from the last debate. It's the non-bonkers version of Herman Cain's nine nine nine. Yes, you know? like we have a it's a we have a single digit here. Everybody can understand this. I want to group Tom Steyer and Andrew Yang together because <laughs> I felt both were mistreated by this debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steyer got his first question twenty eight minutes into the debate. Wow. Yang got his first question 32 minutes into the debate. I'm I'm sorry. I, and I and I may be contradicting myself from an earlier pod, so be it, but if you're going to make the rules and then the candidates qualify by those rules to be in the debate, you have to treat them like a real candidate. That should be the thing. You should not not then get to make distinctions like you're saying this is the field we want. You could have made yeah. you could have made a debate where you say we're going to take the top five people according to whatever formula. You didn't do that. They made the debate, and you should treat them like a real candidate. I'm sorry, I don't think either one of them is going to win. But 32 minutes, like one fourth of the time into the debate, without a question, I don't get that. And you know, I, I know he's tweeting during the debate that he's not getting to talk and all that stuff. I, I agree, you're you're not, and it's stupid. Yeah, and going to them as sort of single issue candidates. I mean, I guess Yang got got directly asked, uh, you know, how wh- wh- what experience he had to be able to deal with, you know, um, various international affairs. He got um, a Putin question. He got a parental leave question. He got one on uh, white supremacist terror, right? That um, he talked about classifying as domestic terror. Steyer got asked about housing policy. Steyer had this real thing a good where subject, he was like that. By the way. He's yeah, but he was like the I'm the nobody else will say it guy tonight. Nobody on this stage is talking about term limits and everybody's kind of looking at each other. Like, yeah, you're right. And then he was like, nobody will say the climate is the number one issue or, or I can't remember how he phrased it, but everything was in the the nobody else is talking about this. And he did get into it Biden at one point, but I think Democrats are very, very happy to ignore Tom Steyer as much as they possibly can. And yeah, I mean, I think I think that the 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 prevailing things that I I mean, arguments that I saw on on Twitter tonight were. Well, 
you know, the the Trump the the Trump presidential campaign and like various Russian trolls retweeting um, retweeting Tulsi Gabbard lines. I thought that was one thing, but the other thing was like uh, like why is Tom Steyer up here and Castro's not? Um, and I think that I think that just like all these you know other potential candidates, Bloomberg and whoever else that are talking about getting into the race, Tom Steyer's kind of got that question to answer too. And I and I and I don't you know he's there. But I'm not sure anybody, I'm not sure even the voters are particularly interested in taking him seriously. And even though I feel like it really diminishes, it's funny, it was funny when Andrew Yang stood up for him at some point, at one, that one point during the debate, it diminishes mm-hmm. everything he's accomplished. Tom Steyer is an incredibly admirable guy um, and, and, and honest and forthright. And he was right. He's the only one up there talking about structural change and a lot of issues. You know, he, he went into direct democracy, man. I mean, that's like some, that's some wild stuff for a primary co- argument, you know? And, um, right. but, but he hasn't had to do any, I mean, he's, all he's had to do is, you know, spend money on, on stuff. Like he hasn't and, had to make laws and that's an advantage. Like I can, and, you can talk and about listen, everybody should be, ske- and, and, and everybody should be full, should be skeptical of him to the point of dismissing him. I'm, I'm all aboard on that. I mean, I think, I don't, I, I think that he's got, there's, there's too much baggage to overcome. And I think that the, the Bloomberg question that we, that we, that we talked about last episode or the one before applies to him too. It's like, why is he not just donating to a campaign that, that he, that he yes. agrees with? Um, because he's not making any headway doing this. He just see, he he's he's turned himself into a powerful activist from a powerful activist into you know a kooky also ran, and that's not a place anybody wants to be. And finally, David Ooh. Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> Twenty five <laughs> minutes before she got into the debate, uh, got into it with Kamala Harris. Harris called her essentially a de facto Fox News anti-Obama pundit. Uh, She got off the line, the Bush-Clinton-Trump foreign policy of regime change wars numerous times. And then as we heard, uh, locked up with Mayor Pete at the end about his invasion of Mexico. The Times, by the New York Times, judges what she said about Buttigieg invading Mexico to not be true or stretching the truth or whatever it is. She she certainly made waves tonight. As I mentioned, the Trump uh, campaign retweeted her or tweeted tweeted out some some one of her comments about the, the Democratic establishment and uh and she's you not know, good at attacking people though. Remember we she was going to no, put she's everybody on blast and she's not good at it. No, no. I mean, I and I think if you saw her exchange with I mean, she went after Mayor Pete and I think if any if you I saw people online saying, I mean, and again, uh, you know, the the provenance of these it may be suspicious, but people saying that she like, distri- you know, she 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 took him down. I mean, if, if you if you maybe if you stopped listening after she stopped talking, but I thought Mayor Pete going back at her, Buttigieg going back at her, and then earlier, like you you mentioned, Senator Harris going after her, were two of the biggest like you know X destroys Y YouTube clip moments of the night, um, and. And I, I, you know, I think if she had anything to lose, it would you would say I. It's tough to see where she goes from here, but, um, you know, it, it seemed like everybody was just fed up with her. Like the feeling that like I just I just described of like voters like trying to figure out what Tom Steyer was doing up there. I felt like everybody else on stage was trying to figure out what Tulsi Gabbard was still doing up there, and, um, yeah, I mean she she did not. She, she, I, I don't feel like, I mean, I feel like she, she, she probably had a successful night by her, uh, by, by her campaign calculus, but I just can't imagine, 
anything anything coming from this uh, in a, in a positive way. But we'll see. I mean, we'll you know we'll see. She got to take on Hillary Clinton. Um, that that was a I guess that was a significant moment. I don't know. I mean, what else what else do we take from this? I mean, are we gonna is is she, is she gonna hang around till I mean till the bitter end? Well, she's she's inching closer to qualifying for December. So and I think as long as she keeps qualifying for debates, she doesn't seem to be a candidate to me that's too worried about, you know, getting out of this race anytime soon. I, I think she's I think she's in it all the way. And I think whatever whatever she's doing next depends on her staying in this race and attacking what she says are the rotten establishment Democrats. I don't know what she's going to do next. I don't know if she's going to run as a third party. I don't know if she's going to uh, be a Fox News pundit. I don't know if she has some other act in her, but whatever it is, it depends on her doing this. The whole thing that you mentioned earlier about, and this is probably, this is kind of neither here nor there, and I think we talked about it some after the last debate, but the whole thing about the Bush-Clinton-Trump foreign policy, the, the regime change wars, when she said regime change wars in the past couple of debates over and over and over, and I don't, I mean, maybe this says more about me than it says about her, but when you <laughs> use a phrase, when you use a phrase like that, that I would just haven't heard ever, so many times and so deliberately and so and so confidently i can't help but just think like what weird websites are you reading all day that use this language <laughs> that i'm unfamiliar with you know i mean it just seems like, like subscribe to that newsletter yeah. no I, yeah yeah i would absolutely like to never see that website or newsletter in my life like i don't want to but but it just it, it's it's suspect you know it's suspect but you know i mean like i said she probably thinks she had a great night and um I just, I think that she is, I mean, you mentioned Kenny Herzog talking about the cheap pop and to go back to wrestling one more time. I mean, she seemed to be up there playing heel tonight. I think the open question is to what degree she's, uh, she's, you know, embracing that role because like you said, she's not that great at it. Um, but it does seem to be the role she's been cast into. This isn't explicitly about the debate, David, but it seems like it's the most important story in American politics, and we should finish here. Can we talk about Fartgate? Because <laughs> House Intel Committee member and former quixotic presidential candidate Eric Swalwell was on Hardball Monday on the same network we saw the debate on tonight, MSNBC. We don't have smell-o-vision, alas, but listen to this clip very, very carefully taxpayer dollars to ask the ukrainians to help them cheat an election and the complaint that i've heard from Republicans- <laughs> yeah hardball issued a statement about that noise saying sorry to disappoint the conspiracy theorists by the way i'm not sure i'm not sure anybody was proposing a conspiracy <laughs> right conspiracy is like when multiple people get together to do something right this is i think we were thinking about one particular host of hardball but sorry to disappoint the conspiracy theorists it was the hardball mug scraping across the desk gets you get yours today and let's get back to the news and then there's a link to the msnbc store to which the political writer josh barrow replies buy this mug that makes fart noises is not one of the better product pitches I've heard lately. <laughs> David, what is your take on Fartgate? Uh, my mind, and this is not, I know a lot of people tweeted about this. I did not have to look at Twitter for my mind to immediately go 
to a, a blindgossip.com post from August of 2018 uh, titled The MSNBC Farter. Um, and it, 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 I'm, re- I'm reading from blindgossip.com. Which cable news host at MSNBC has touch- such a terrible case of flatulence that the guests are running for the doors after appearing live on the cable host show? Producers have tried everything from fans to air fresheners and even removing spicy food from the host's dressing room, but nothing seems to work. Oh. <laughs> I'm not saying so t- I'm not trying to make this into a conspiracy theory, but if you wanted to start drawing lines, uh, the, the, you know, the truth is out there. There's a PA going into this unnamed MSNBC host dressing room and just taking the spicy food away and yes. putting it in the trash and just putting quinoa or something else, some <laughs> yeah. less flatulent food there. They've tried there's everything. A whole, there's a whole Twitter thread by somebody named Aaron Burdett that has evidence, let us say, of other hardball explosions. So if you really want to go down the rabbit hole tonight, have at it. I'm drinking some Keurig brewed coffee right now, David, and I do not think I could get this mug to make that sound if I scraped it across the desk a hundred times. So anyway, not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> he is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by the great Jim Cunningham. Thank you for staying up with us. We're back Tuesday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. See you later, Brian. Thank you, sir.